Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are coming to you from unceded Gadigal land right now. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us. It will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. This is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Tanya Ali, and this week we're bringing you a special episode put together by Binta Yard. We've got Binta with us right now uh, to introduce this special app and herself. Uh, Binta, thank you so much for coming through on Race Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. So to start, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a 20-year-old creative slash student um, from Southwest Sydney, living between Sydney and London. Um, that's about it, I guess. <laughs> Love that. Uh, and you've brought us a story that I feel like, I don't know, encapsulates a lot of what this year has been. Could you tell us a little bit about your piece? Right. So my piece is called I Am Black, I Am a Woman, I Matter. Um, and it really is just a conversation with a few of the women I know, a few of the black women I know about what it is to be a black woman and the experiences that um, we go through on a day-to-day basis living in a predominantly white, you know, predominantly right-wing country. Um, and I think I think what they had to say was just something that I wanted to share. I think we have the conversations all the time, but they remain within our circles. And um, I think that they should be had on a wider, wider scale. What kind of led you to make this piece initially? It feels like a bit of a silly question because obviously this year, you know, what didn't lead you to make this piece? (laughs) Um, But I'm interested to hear, you know, when the idea kind of came into practicality. Yeah, it came in, as you said, it's been the year for it. Um, I think everything kind of contributed to it, but it was around after you know the death of George Floyd and um, the death of Breonna Taylor and kind of more things started to come up about her murder um, you know she was shot in her apartment sleeping by police who you know entered illegally um, didn't follow the proper protocol and she died as a result of their negligence as their their, their lack of care I guess um, and I think during that time it was like a very emotionally charged time and there wasn't a lot to do with you know, the frustration, the anger, the sadness. Um, And I just felt like it was important to kind of speak, you know, with my black sisters about what we were all going through because it was a time where we were all kind of, for once, like on the same page about everything. Um, And we were all feeling the same feelings. Um, 
So I decided to make a piece um, about what it is to be a black woman, about the experiences I felt like the mic wasn't really being passed to us throughout the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so I decided to make a mic <laughs> and uh, to pass it to my sisters. So you speak to four people in the piece. Who are they and why did you choose to speak to them? So the first two women that I speak to in the piece are Saskia Powell and Majida Beatty. They are two black women that I've known, I've known of since I was like a young teenager. Um, and I didn't grow up around many black women. I didn't have many black women, fe female figures in my life. Um, so I was always aware of them and looked up to them. Um, and then over time we became friends and they've always had such important things to say every time we speak. They're so well-spoken, they're so intelligent, they're so, they're just kind-hearted people, they're such beautiful people. So they were the first people I thought of when I thought I should make this. Um, and the conversation was incredible. And I think it's something that I'm gonna pass down to my children. It's very valuable what they had to say. Um, so that those were the two first women I spoke to. Later in the piece, in the second half, I speak to Sunny Adcock and her sister Izzy Parker. Um, Sunny is my best friend. She's also a, I'm not sure what you would call her. I suppose an activist of sorts. Um, she's very vocal um, on social media platforms about um, issues relating to race and body neutrality, body positivity and things like that. Um, and she's incredibly intelligent and incredibly um, well thought out and has a lot of valuable things to say and a lot of interesting perspectives. Um, so she was an obvious choice. And her sister Izzy, who is also incredibly talented, incredibly, um, just incredibly, yeah, she's just an incredible person. Um, she was um, with Sunny when we were recording and she was contributing to the conversation. I was like, you need to be in this. And she was like, no, I don't want to. And I was like, well, it's not a choice anymore at this point. <laughs> um, and she offers a really interesting kind of alternative view because she comes from quite like a spiritual um, approach to matters of race and things like that, whereas Sunny's quite an academically her thinking is more based in academia. Um, so having them to contributing to like on the same topics was really, really interesting having that. We're gonna hear the piece in a moment in its entirety, but before we do that, Vinta, we ask one question of all of our guests who come through on Race Matters. Uh, and so we're gonna ask you too. <laughs> when did you realize there was power in your race? Um, that's a good question. I think as cliche as it probably sounds, it was probably around the time of, this is so lame, but it was probably around the time of like Black Panther and things like that when that came out. Um, because I think growing up black in Australia, there is a big disconnect from what it is to be black in the general global sense, because it's normally like a US centric kind of narrative. Um, and because I'm not originally from the US, I'm you know African diaspora um, and my dad's Senegalese. Um, and matters of race don't really come up in Senegalese culture as such because it is, you know, it's an African country. Um, so there isn't that kind of constant dichotomy of having to live um, in between two worlds, living between a white world and a black world. Um, so I didn't really grow up with the kind of racial awareness that you would get, say, living in the States or living in the UK. So when, you know, things like Black Panther came out and African culture kind of as a result became a lot more widespread in Sydney or kind of started to become a bit more 
noticeable and a bit more attainable, um, that's, that's when I started to see the power in our race. It's beautiful. <laughs> This is I Am Black, I Am A Woman, and I Matter. I acknowledge and pay my respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work. I also respectfully acknowledge all Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging, and recognise that we live and work on stolen lands, and that Aboriginal sovereignty has never been ceded. It says that to be black and a woman is to labour under the double handicap of racism and sexism. Historically, the black woman has carried this dual burden. She's had to work alongside the black man in a struggle unlike that of any other group in the United States. I'm here with you. Black girl, black girl, do your thing. I see you trying to navigate through the struggle. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, we on the same page. Let it all out, sister, you can cry. Being independent, it can make you bitter. Your granny's strong, now you're trying to be a pillar. So go hard, never sacrifice your feelings. I'm here with you, I'm here with you. When I say black woman, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Be honest with yourself. I asked this question to a group of people and an overwhelming amount of the response said things like oppressed, undervalued, overlooked, strong and, well, thick. Despite having shown themselves as arguably, and by arguably I do mean you could argue but you would be wrong, the most resilient, hardworking, nurturing and innately loving people in our society, black women remain the most oppressed race and gender group across the world. This isn't news to many, but for those still living in blissful ignorance, here are some facts and figures to get the point across. According to a study conducted by the AAUW, as of 2019, it takes a black woman 19 months to earn what a white man takes home in a year for the exact same role. Now, this can't be put down to a lack of black women in the workforce either, as they're also more present at higher rates than any other race of women. At this rate, pay equity would be achieved in 2,369. That's almost 13 generations until our great-great-great-great and then some granddaughters will earn as much as their white male counterparts. That's ridiculous. Add to that the fact that while 84% of black mothers are breadwinners, which represents a larger share than any other racial group, black women are still forced into full-time minimum wage jobs more often than any other race or gender. The evidence that black women are economically oppressed just keeps stacking up. On the social side, things don't get much better. Across the Western world, black women are four to six times more likely to die a pregnancy-related death and are more likely than any other race to be misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. They're two times more likely to be incarcerated than a white woman for the same offence. And finally, they're four times more likely to have their kids taken by child services than white mothers. I could go on blurting out figures just to convey how institutionally and systematically oppressed black women are, but if none of these struck a chord with you, I'm sure the fact that Beyonce's Lemonade lost album of the year to Adele will make my point just fine. Seriously, no shade to Adele, but if you've heard Lemonade, you know we were robbed. Now, before I go on, I'd like to make clear that these figures are from US and UK sources, reason being that there has yet to be any studies of this kind conducted within Australia, which is a problem in itself. 
That being said, it has been acknowledged by the Australian Human Rights Commission that one of the biggest barriers for migrant and Indigenous women is systemic racism. Meaning, it's not just about whether individuals hold racist views, but about the uneven impact of laws, policies and practices, and the way they are entrenched within institutions, governments and businesses. It's very easy to remain disconnected from data and statistics. I get it. It's easy to ignore that these numbers represent real people. But we, black women, can't ignore it. The implication of the colour of our skin and the gender we're assigned at birth go far beyond the racial pay gap, go far beyond the gender pay gap, far beyond the birth mortality rate, far beyond it all. We are human beings. We eat, we breathe, we sleep just like everyone else. We also feel just like everyone else. We absorb every little comment thrown our way, every microaggression, every dirty look, every backhanded compliment. We absorb it all, and it shapes us into the women we grow up to be. Through our shared experiences, we find safe spaces in our communities. So I thought it only natural to interview some black women from my community who represent the harmonious and varied mix of and within black women. There are many questions black women get asked on a daily basis. Is that your real hair? Where are you really from? Oh, can I touch it? No, you cannot. But the questions I ask my black sisters are the ones that are only ever asked to us by each other, seemingly because we're the only ones who care enough to ask. Now, I have another question for you. It's nothing trivial, don't worry. Just a simple yes or no will suffice. Do you feel seen and do you feel heard? Whatever your answer may be, you will either gain comfort or perspective in hearing what the incredible women I interviewed had to say. The four women you're about to hear speak in order of appearance are Saskia Powell, Majida Beatty, Sunny Adcock, and Izzy Parker. Saskia is Jamaican Spanish, Majida is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and African American, and Sunny and Izzy, who are sisters, are both African American Australian. What these women have to say is valuable, so listen closely. considered and thought of it's it's very strange it's a very um weird place to navigate and especially like Majita said in Australia where you know there just aren't a lot of black people obviously this is a black country colonized by white people and you could live in a whole area your whole life and not see anyone else that looks like you um it's crazy it's it's crazy I think that's a really good point because I always get seen in a surface kind of way that they see me, I'm black, I'm the only one in the room that looks like me. But how I kind of internalized that question was, do they see me for what I really am? And that question is no. So I'm always seen, but never heard. And I can speak and they'll hear it, but it's not something they digest or take in. It's this very big now things have changed a lot since we were younger nude no longer just means beige makeup shades go past tan and it's becoming increasingly uncommon to come across tv shows and movies with all white casts so clearly there is work being done to move industries towards a true representation of the society we live in 
It can't help feeling like at times the intentions behind these strides forward are performative, or at least selfishly motivated. It's hard to tell whether these changes really represent substantive change or whether they're just bones being thrown at us. It's kind of twofold. There is change that's happening. It's, it's very different to how it was when we were growing up. People are seeing that blackness is profitable, and that's all it is at the end of the day. Um, so there's that, and then there's also the small black businesses that are coming up, you know, representation-wise. I feel like our generation, um, not to take away from, you know, our parents' generation, but I feel like we're really doing the brunt of a lot of work representation-wise, um, and even just with having these conversations. But I feel like, yeah, it's twofold, because in our own communities, we're doing a lot of work, but the rest of the world is profiting off of us at the same time. So it's, it's a weird place. It's a weird place to be in. As I said before, black women find safe spaces in our communities through our shared experiences. When it comes to being a black woman, self-care is often overlooked. We're being pulled at so many different ends and constantly trying to defeat the odds to achieve more than our ancestors were permitted to. Nonetheless, it is of utmost importance, and our self-care reminds us that we matter when a lot of the world tells us we don't. Our self-care keeps us afloat. But our self-care isn't a one-size-fits-all, fixes-all. So what does self-care look like for the women I know? Well, obviously, everything's closed now, but because I'm Aboriginal Torres Strait, I like to go to a lot of different events to recharge side of me, different cultural events, whether that be dance events, food events. I just like to kind of keep myself surrounded by it. But I think on a daily basis, to keep my kind of inner peace, I just mind my business and keeps myself a lot. Giving myself that space just to be has been really helpful for me, being in my own company just kind of getting lost in black art. I love discovering new black artists. I'm really excited when I can come across black creative content. That kind of brings me peace. I, I think the black culture is quite diverse, especially in the arts, so I can be listening to Erica Badu, I can be listening to, you know, Indy Iris, Mocha Blunt. But then I can also change it up and shake my ass to some city girls. And that makes me feel good, being in my own company, being with my black art. Yeah, just being black in my space because I can just be peacefully by myself. I think a big part of my self-care is being surrounded by black women. And you know what? Black men as well because I was raised by black men, so I, I find comfort and I feel at home with black men as well. Um, I have I have an incredible community around me that slowly, you know, slowly has grown over the years, and I think you know they've been my biggest comfort because it's like we'll be in situations where you know we're out in the rest of the world in the white world, and something will happen, and there's that safe space in in a look or in a hand touch or you know in just being together, and and that to me is, is such a big part of self-care because it's like I live in a white country where my people aren't here 
So it's very important to be intentional about spending time with other black people and meeting other black people and also letting them know like, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here too. We're in this together um, and creating that unity and creating that community. So yeah, my, my black sisters, my black brothers, they're definitely If you recall at the beginning of this piece, I mentioned some of the responses I got to the first thing people think of when they hear the term black woman. One of them was strong. The strong black woman trope has long been a term of backhanded endearment. Used to divert attention away from the humanity of black women, the strong black woman stereotype is often attributed as being the social explanation for the great medical mistreatments of black women, among other mistreatments. On a more general note, its insinuation that black women are stronger or more resilient than any other woman leads to the further dehumanization and neglect of the very same black women. It creates a narrative that says that because we're strong, because we can take it, there's no reason to treat us any better. It creates a vicious cycle in which we're constantly being oppressed, constantly being mistreated, and because we're able to bounce back from it, no one sees any reason to stop. The strong black woman is not a compliment. It's a thinly veiled excuse to constantly test our strength and push us to our limits. I can recognise other black women's strength, but to me it's not this huge power push through. It's the regular, everyday experience of black women. You need to have strength to be able to go through what we go through on a daily basis and be sane. Because if we're not always on ready to respond, ready to speak up, then we're just going to be beat down. So we always have to be switched on. We always have to be ready to be the voice of black people, to be the voice of black women. It's not fair. It's not okay. But this is our regular lives. So this, oh, she's so strong. No, that's just a black woman doing what a black woman has to do to get by. The strong black woman trope um, actually doesn't do us any favours. Um, black women are strong because they have to be, not because they're naturally better equipped in it. I mean, maybe we're naturally better equipped because it's literally in our DNA, and that's because generational trauma, I believe, is a real thing that is passed down. Um, it's just the fact that um, black girls are perceived, perceived as more grown-up than their white counterparts. Um, it's also just the fact that our idea of womanhood in general is defined by whiteness and white virtue. Um, and, you know, white women are so incredibly complicit in the demonization of black women that, you know, that's why feminism is still not as far as it should be because of the historical exclusion of black women and the fact that sisterhood has just never spanned across races consistently enough to make real change. Um, and so I just think a really great kind of answer to that question would just to be to really examine the perceived notions of womanhood to look at the feminist movement and the history of that and just the way that we undervalue black womanhood in general and the way that we expect them to be the matriarchs all the time we expect them to be stoic to be strong to be resilient to be unbreakable but also that we just we, we praise them for the fact that they can take all the punches but then we need to be asking why do we keep punching them Basically what we're saying is do not call us strong if you have no intention of making our lives any easier, period. Now, the strong black woman trope isn't the only harmful stereotype peddled by misogynoir. Misogynoir, think misogyny but black, contempt and dislike directed towards black women exclusively. 
The backbone of misogynoir is confining black women to harmful stereotypes such as the Jezebel, meaning the overly sexual, promiscuous woman, the sassy black woman, the angry black woman, and our old friend, the strong black woman. Every black woman you meet will have a story about her personal experience with misogynoir. Here's a few. Obviously, growing up in a predominantly white, predominantly right-wing patriarchal country will have a detrimental effect on anyone who isn't, well, a white man. And look, being a woman is hard no matter what race. It just so happens that all odds have been stacked against black women. In constant defiance of the historical shackles placed upon us, we are constantly working to better ourselves while staying true to ourselves. It's not always easy. In fact, it's never easy. It's even less so growing up. As a kid, you don't possess the self-awareness and confidence that you can gain from within yourself as an adult. Not seeing people who look like us on TV, in positions of power, even just on the street, creates a narrative of insecurity and oftentimes self-hatred directed towards the one thing we can't change. The way we look. The way we appear to the world. Did you grow up feeling beautiful? I really not feeling myself. I hated myself for a really long time. 
growing up here in Australia, everything I saw around me did not resonate with me, did not look like me. The lack of representation of black people of any tone, lighter skin, dark skin, of any black people, had such a negative effect on how I saw myself. I think loving myself as a black person, I've been able to do that in my teen years, realizing the value and the worth of black women. And that was a 360 for me. I was able to really dive deep into my blackness. Um, I surrounded myself, I actively surrounded myself around black people and, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, as I said, I'm 22, I'm still dealing, I'm still processing, I'm still growing into my blackness, but I feel much stronger than when I was five years old trying to pull my hair out. The dehumanising treatment of black women is not new. It's been around as long as people have been around. This year has reminded us all of that. Aside from the personal implications of being a black woman that we just spoke about, there are more pressing, overt, imminent instances of the dehumanisation of black women. Seeing it manifested into concrete form over and over again, reminding us that it's not all in our head, we truly are seen as lesser than. I speak with many examples in mind. I think of Megan Thee Stallion being shot by her friend and the only response the global stage could offer was jokes and insensitivity. I think of Sintoya Brown, who at 16 was sentenced to life for defending herself against her abductor, while guys like Brock Turner are being let off rape charges because it might affect their future. More immediately, I think of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old emergency medical technician shot dead while she was asleep in her apartment by white police officers. The shooting of Breonna Taylor sent shockwaves throughout the black community, but more specifically, it sent shockwaves throughout the communities of black women around the world. We saw in her ourselves, we saw in her our sisters, our mothers, our friends. And when the police officers who murdered her in her sleep were charged not for her death, but for the damage caused to her white neighbor's walls, we saw in her a reminder that our lives, still to this day, are of less value than property. The Black Lives Matter protests around the world this year were sparked by the death of George Floyd, an African-American man murdered by white police officers in Minneapolis. The global response to his death was overwhelming. It was fast-paced and gave us hope that maybe this time things would change. Two months prior, Breonna Taylor was murdered. This didn't gain much attention at the time, and when it did, the public outcry about her death was easily drowned out, and soon she became a meme used on social media platforms for clout and to show performative allyship remembered only in truth by those who knew her and those who saw themselves in her. She deserved so much better from us, from all of us. Now, without comparing tragedies, the stark contrast between George Floyd's death and the ensuing events, and Breonna Taylor's death and the lack of ensuing events, is indicative of a bigger problem with regards to the treatment and value placed upon black women by institutions and the public, even by our own people. The respected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected one, a person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. In her death, we were reminded that even within our own community, our lives often carry less weight than that of a black man. And that is a problem. I think that the absolute sort of, just the comparison 
comparison between how the media and the rest of the world responded to the murder of George Floyd versus Breonna Taylor really speaks to the way that we undervalue black women. And it also just speaks to the levels of intersectional oppression or privilege for that matter and the fact that, you know, even though George Floyd is marginalized because he is black, he's also going to get preferential treatment because he is a man. And so he still benefits from that gender privilege in that sense. And I think um, we have, not we as in the black community, but I think the media and more globally, we have done a disservice to Breonna Taylor and to the other black women who are mistreated or murdered, you know, at the hands of white assailants by letting their names be forgotten or neglected in the conversation. We continue to send our love and prayers to the loved ones of the black women who have been taken too soon for no good reason. We need to do better to protect our black women. We need to show them the same selflessness, love and concern that they have unfailingly shown the world, even in the darkest of times. How does one do better, you might ask? Well... There are two things that we can start off by doing. The first is to see black women as leaders. But when I say that, I don't mean it is. Let's continue to let black women do the bulk of the heavy lifting. I don't mean that. I mean that as in trust them as being the authority on black issues and issues relating to black womanhood. You know, let black women govern themselves and speak for themselves, acknowledge their agency and give them the microphone, don't speak over them. They are capable and equipped and they know better than you, so let them define things for themselves. Um, But then also, in the same token, see black women as humans who aren't unbreakable. Let them have mental health days. Show them love and support. Don't just assume that they're resilient and they're great at doing what they do. Um, And I think once we start to finally humanize black women more, because I don't think we really see and treat them as humans, then that is the first step of many that need to be taken. For me, seeing who we are is the first step and seeing, acknowledging and honoring that. And honouring that isn't discarding just the culture in the background, just not seeing it, is actually making that visible, doing the back work of educating yourself on what that history is, what that culture is, and not just ignoring that. I think that is one of the first bits of education. And also seeing them, as as Sunny put it, as just humans. And I think there is a beautiful othering of seeing the beauty there, but then also taking away that othering and just seeing it as a human. That'd be a nice step to just be an equal there. And that's how you do better. Now, this piece sheds light on a very real, very significant part of every black woman's existence. It can't remain like this, and we all need to do better to make sure it doesn't. That being said, being a black woman is something we wouldn't trade for the world. There is power in our DNA from the moment we are born to the moment we take our last breath. We are so varied, so beautiful, and so divinely magical. Jay, it's all in your genes. You a masterpiece. You a work of art. Your beauty is deep. They knock you down, but somehow you get on your feet. Huh. See, that's the black girl magic indeed. Now, let it be said once and for all that all the answers to your questions are out there, and they are clear as day. If you ever find yourself pondering how a black woman feels living in a predominantly white society, come right back here. And remember, I am black, I am a woman, and I matter.
Race matters. 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 Race matters.